Welcome, y'all, to the premiere episode of The Horrors of Love. I'm your host, Jeanette Wall. In this series, we discuss what we can learn from the genre of horror about dating, sex, love, and relationships. I'll bring on a guest every week to talk about one of our favorite films, and this week's guest is writer-director Kyle Trask-Kukta. He's my best friend, and I couldn't think of anyone better suited to begin this journey with me. This episode, we discuss May, starring Angela Bettis as the title character, a misfit veterinary clinician who begins a few misguided love affairs, but finding true love within herself along the way. Spoiler warning, we get into all the gory details, so watch before tuning in. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited to go on this journey with you. And without further ado, here's May. Hello, and welcome to Horrors of Love. I'm your host, Jeanette Wall. Today, for our premiere episode, we will be discussing Lucky McKee's 2002 cult treasure, May. This film stars Angela Bettis as May, alongside early 2000s youth culture favorites Jeremy Sisto and Anna Ferris. For this episode, I wanted to bring on someone very special to me. Our guest is a writer, director, producer of several documentaries, and his spectacular Christmas-themed short, The Woodsman, is making the rounds at Chattanooga Film Festival, Knoxville Horror Film Festival, Philadelphia Unnamed Film Fest, and many more. More to the point, he's one of my very best friends, and one of the main people I credit for introducing me to the deep, deep love of horror films it's kyle trask hi i can't believe you spout all those lies to these poor people um no they need to know they need to know um thank you so much jeanette yes we've we've known each other a very long time and it is truly a joy to continue to share in the horrors of love with you and i'm so excited to be to be here with you so thank you for having me on to not not only just having me on but to talk about hands down one of my favorite films that truly like grows up the list every time I get to watch it it's it's spectacular I definitely I don't know if we had specifically talked about this film before Kyle but I definitely associate it with you for some reason I don't I don't know if it's just Lucky McKee maybe, maybe. um the the latent gothy angsty themes it's of the early 2000s yeah. um <laughs> we definitely haven't sat down and watched it together but all of those thematic elements have danced like they are in our orbit um the Venn diagram somehow it didn't whatever this pinpoint didn't land upon amongst our Venn diagram but I'm so glad it, it did now because it is very our vibe deeply our vibe and frankly I couldn't think of a better film to kick off this podcast series that yeah. it sort of encapsulates so much of what I want to talk about on this this here horror cast it so. does it does more than I didn't look at it through the lens in which we're going to look at talk about it today and I'm I, I'm very thankful that you 
did and that we did because holy shit. It encapsulates so much. Very it's rich. A, it's a rich text. Yeah. So I would like to start off and ask you, uh, what is your relationship to the horror genre? Mm. And you can also kind of continue into what is your relationship to this episode's film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm... Horror for me has always has been pretty deep rooted. Um, you know, as a before being a filmmaker, choosing film as my medium, I was a, a I was a storyteller, and I mean that's kind of a big <laughs> that's kind of a big um, grandiose statement. But for me, uh, storytelling was working with my grandparents to put on a haunted house every Halloween, like and when we called it a haunted yard because we didn't have the house in which we built, but we had a, a vast yard in which we built all these little scenario like little haunted scenarios like we had a fish pond and it became pirate's cove or we had a shed that ended up being hansel and gretel's like cab you know the cab the witch's cabin and you know stuff like that we did for five six years of my like early childhood like kindergarten to fifth grade really my elementary school i've seen the photos audience (laughs) shit's real (laughs) shit's real so beautiful so um horror has always been a, a medium for me to tell a story and a lot of those were like funny not so scary for kid things so it was like it 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 was i was taught that horror can be ripe and um accessible early on you know they showed me the universal monster movies and godzilla and stuff that wouldn't scare me scare me but would still give me an understanding of of fear or horror or whatever it might be and that just continued through into into me developing my own voice, me realizing I wanted to tell more stories and then finding film as my medium. And I found horror movies proper, like my own direct connection to them, probably in my teenage years. Um, You know, I started getting Fangoria magazines and um, going to horror conventions and that developed into what I went on to do as a filmmaker. I did a documentary about horror movie conventions when I was in college called Phantasm, and then uh, a documentary about cult cinema and how technology changes the definition of cult cinema um, called Survival of the Film Freaks. And all of my... I'm wearing a survival t-shirt right now, folks. you are wearing a survival t-shirt. And Jeanette was there through it all, uh, from Phantasm (laughs) on. Uh, she was there for it all. In but, fact, uh, I, 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 if before. I remember correctly, you actually stayed in my childhood bedroom in Indiana while filming I, parts of I did, Phantasm. I did. Shout out, Walls. <laughs> uh, thank you for, for housing me for, for a moment. Um, it was a joy. Uh, I did. I did. I stayed in your bedroom. <laughs> and I, I, even before that, I mean, I remember, I remember you and I watching, the, was it the Amityville Horror remake in our common room freshman year. Um, we watched a lot of movies in that room. I do remember watching the poltergeist for the first time with you. Yeah. 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 So we, anyway, my, my connection to, and we, and that's the other thing is horror has always been a way for me to connect with other people. Um, because I found it so accessible or found different and different entry points. I knew that I could, um, connect with people through that, medium through horror no matter what it never for me horror i mean i shouldn't say it was never outsider it was it it was outsider for my teenage years and for those other developmental years that are kind of challenging that i think anybody who finds an interest in anything feels outsider unless it's i don't know unless it's a majority thing but for a lot of us i mean 
I would say, I mean, Jeanette, probably for for you, is a lot of music stuff, right? Like, um, I think it was also a lot of movies, but I think, um, you know, it, it's it's hard, you know, at this point, you know, looking back at popular culture mm-hmm. with our with our twenty twenty two lens, mm-hmm. I feel like everyone always feels like an outsider, and that's that's right. why you know horror is such a universal medium. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're absolutely right. I think that it, it, it doesn't feel outsider any more to me. It feels like yeah. something I, it feels like something I have the, um, the joy of being able to connect with other people on now. Because um, there's always something. There's always something. There's never no connection to horror. I think there's something for everyone in everyone. this genre. Everyone. Absolutely. And, and so so to uh, to wrap that up, because I could uh, wax poetic about the genre forever, and we will. We will talk we more will. about it. Um, but <laughs> I got connected to May through, I feel, this is a little cloudy, but I feel that there was an advertisement in a Fangoria that had the cover of May. I was going to say, this came out around the time when you I know you to be getting those Fangoria magazines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... There was definitely a chance, and I mean, so the movie came out in 2002, but maybe the release or a review came out 2003, you know, like, even even just, like, back issues I might have picked up, you know, there was, there's a chance, I remember distinctly having seen the poster, or the cover, the DVD cover art for May, and me being an angsty teenager, there's a gothy lady on the front. I, I, you know, come on, like, what was I going to say? It's no? your bread and butter. It's, it's, <laughs> it's for sure for me. And then at a horror convention, Angela Bettis and Lucky McKee, um, I'm sorry, no, just Angela Bettis was there. Um, and at, at that time, it was one of those things where, like, if... <laughs> I was the I was this type of person where if I was going to go to a concert of a particular band, I would do nothing but listen to that band for a month beforehand, right? I would like obsess over it. Uh, the same thing for horror conventions. I would look at the guest list and I'd be like, "Oh, I gotta go. I gotta see everything." I don't know why. Like, what I was was I going to talk to them about everything? I don't know. You but were. I was. <laughs> you were going to talk to Angela about Carrie. God. You were going <laughs> to no, talk right? to her about May. I know. I know. And I and and Angela Bettis is still one of my favorite, favorite, favorites. She's, She's super fen- underrated. Phenomenal in yeah. this film specifically. Yeah. She's, yeah. um, so special yeah. in like how she captures this character. I feel like. Nobody this could have done it better. Nobody. It's um, iconic. It is iconic. It's iconic. And and then you know, and then I learn about Lucky McKee's like career as an independent filmmaker or as a filmmaker, um, but working in a world that was so interesting to me in a boom of other horror independent filmmakers who are also, you know, uh, we're also talking about the rise in horror journalism online, things like Dread Central and Bloody Disgusting. Um, and, you know, Fangoria was still going strong, but not as strong as it had in the past. So I had some overlap and it was just it was just it was, again, just so ripe for me as a, somebody interested in horror and as a filmmaker. Um, and it still is. It's God, this was awesome. Yeah, it feels like also looking back on it and granted, I was not as into horror at the time this film came out as I am now, but I am. Um, I was also like 12. (laughs) um, It feels like to me, May seems like an outlier in that era of film as well, in that 
having a female centric narrative was not necessarily the norm if I'm remembering correctly it feels like this was an age of like early Eli Roth um you know this was like right. very male centric right. filmmaking um and granted there's definitely a male gaze in this film but it seems a lot more progressive yeah and self-aware than a lot of the other films coming out at the time so I think this is a great little gem to pluck from this era that is kind of yeah I guess this is just like the perfect confluence for you Kyle because this is it's bringing together a lot of yeah you know uh the the era of your your film your your burgeoning film love yes um, yeah yeah because I think it, you're right that that whole era so we're coming out of we're coming out of 2000s teen slashers and we're going into torture porn, right? Like we are in a very interesting and distinct and and underneath that is our independent filmmakers who are still doing like, you know, who are doing like direct to DVD things or like, you know, there there's there's this whole inaccess or um more difficultly accessible genre of or or, or um group of films and filmmakers that aren't getting you know Lionsgate is still putting out stuff Lionsgate is a huge champion of those films and filmmakers um, but then they also have the Saw franchise that's just going to come out I think a year later 2003 maybe so like you you know you you lose I don't know yeah you don't lose anything I think that there's luckily there was enough voices putting it out there but it wasn't as popular as I think it could have been in you know again with a, with a female lead with, who is not a f- a final girl by any means, but also not a total villain. Like you really connect with May. I do. I think everybody who watches, I think that, I think that's the whole like thing is that you want to connect with May, despite the horrific things that happen later on. So sympathetic. I guess before we get too deep into that, um, would you mind giving a brief plot summary oh, yeah. of the film? Yeah, absolutely. So don't quote me on this. But <laughs> May, <laughs> May is about a woman, May, who works she's a, she's a, works as a veterinarian, and she's kind of a loner, a little odd, and she's pretty clearly from the start of the film seeking connection to somebody other than this doll that she has that was given to her by her parents, um, when she was younger, and it, clearly that's like her best friend and her, um, you know, emotional object that she connects to. But she, as she grows and becomes a woman, <laughs> you know, it's not like a coming of age story. But as she grows and wants to know how to develop relationships, she comes across. Uh, she finds the beauty in people through their body parts first, and then tries to connect with them on a more uh, so socially acceptable level than just the admiration for their parts. Um, but that causes some complications in her relationships going forward. And I think that it all, and, and that it all culminates in a very macabre um, solution <laughs> to her relational problems. She finds her one true love. She does find her one true love. <laughs> and man, I, I, a match made in heaven, truly. I was actually trying to look up what the name of the doll is that her mother gives her specifically because I actually want to I I think we could we can break down the plot summary a little bit before we get too much into mm-hmm. yeah. the relationships that we yeah. want to get into. Yeah. But I think that 
really interesting thing on watching the rewatching this because for me I'd I'd seen this film before. I knew I liked it. I knew I really connected with the main character, but I don't think I really understood how much I related to this character and how much of uh, my my life's work I see reflected in yeah. or my my life's work, my my personal life's work. Um I've seen reflected in this and I think the really interesting thing is the opening flashback scene is uh, May receiving the doll from her mom like you said and her dad is kind of there but he's not engaged at all and it definitely uh, I, I would be very interested to see the extended intro that I know exists for this film because it it, I think that the relationship to the parents, obviously, in a very, I don't know, Freudian pipe, pop psychology way, definitely informs mm-hmm. uh, the rest of the film. And it's very this very brief introduction you get of her um, as a child with a lazy eye, uh, which is something that her parents, or her mother specifically, really, really focuses in on. Yeah. This flaw of hers that is unfixable yeah and you definitely you see may being forced to connect with this doll whenever she though she can't touch it and i think that that's really mirrored throughout the the film in her other romantic relationships completely but it it does definitely strike me the dad's absence or sort of ambivalence towards may during this birthday party scene is really stuck out to me upon this rewatch. I was yeah. like, you know, I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was super interesting too, because like, I don't, I don't want to downplay anything, but ambivalence is a really interesting word because I think we will see so many stories of people who end up doing the awful or do the horrific things come from a much more specifically horrific background. And the fact that, even just ambivalence, I, you know, it's even just something that maybe other or people indifference. wouldn't. Indifference. Indifference. Even just indifference, the ripple effect of such is still strong. Like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, there yes. is still, there's there's importance in every, <laughs> in every interaction, specifically with a child, <laughs> you know? Well, I was just going to say, I was like, we're going to have a... a... Uh, I feel like a wire monkey episode or, or a wire monkey segment on every episode of the show. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, obviously referring to the uh, psychological experiment that I can't remember any other details about other than they gave a monkey, a wire monkey instead of a real yes. mom and the baby monkeys died faster. Anyways. I have to find, you know what? I, I, being, being the husband of a, a, a psychologist who lived vicariously, I feel like I somehow should know that one. And I'm just like, Pavlov's dog. <laughs> just because that's the fun one to say. Same difference. It's the, yeah, it's more of just, I like to say it. And I don't even think I say it correctly, but and yes. Pavlov's dog? Pavlov, oh, Pavlov. I say Pavlov. Tomato, tomato. Right? Pavlov. Pavlov dog. <laughs> anyway. No, you're right. That's the, the, I think there's going to be a lot of, I mean, there is a lot of attachment stuff in, in horror. I think that there's, you know, and this is, this is a, this is a more subtle 
um, presentation it's of that. But it's extremely subtle. Yeah. Like yeah. I really don't. I, I and I didn't know for sure that there was a more extended opening to this film until I listened to Bloody Disgusting's Horror Queers and they talked about it on there. Mm-hmm. But I think it's it, it it's like alarming, yeah. <laughs> like how. In di- yeah, how indifferent, how like begrudged he seems to be there, the father. Mm-hmm. Um, and this heart, in this kind of heartfelt moment of this presentation of this doll, uh, which is obviously equally impactful. So, because, but and so misguided from yeah. from the mother's perspective, but clearly she's trying to pass something on. Yeah, right, um, right, right. So it's just it's already you know May's May's trajectory is already set up a little wonky. <laughs> Um, yeah, I guess. For lack yeah. of a better term. Yeah, and I think you know when we in, are introduced to her um, after this this flashback, we see May conversing with the doll. T- what do you what do you reckon? Like ten, fifteen years later. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a specific time. No. No, they, 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 she doesn't. No, not noted. But uh, but I would say, yeah, I would say about that because she's because she's like maybe twelve when she gets the doll. Like she's yeah, you know. So and she's she's a young she's a young woman working in the vet's office uh, later on, which clearly I don't think she has a degree for. But she's cutting up cats open and shit. Like she's there. Yeah, uh, let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about present day May. I really felt like she was giving. This is what I felt like she was giving. She was giving. Self-taught contestant on Project Runway, first Ooh. sent home. Wow! Like full Michael Kors, poly grape de chine, uh, like you know, totally. Uh, <laughs> I love this read. I, lo- I love this read. It's on her. so specific, um, but I, the people who know will get it because I it's know. so. It's she's she's making her own clothes. They're insane. Everything is patchwork. Everything is kind of like. Like burgundy. <laughs> yeah, the color pattern is is bonkers it's, to me. It's deeply two thousand two. I think yeah, it's, it screams it from the mountaintops. It does. It does. It's very specific, but yeah, I don't know. She's she's giving, uh, you know, she's giving marches to the beat of her own drum. She's serving something for sure. Do you feel like? And I, I feel I, I kept asking myself if I thought May realized how weird she was. Yeah. How, do you, how did? How would you say she interprets her behavior? I think she does know that she's quite weird, but she doesn't really seem to know how to behave otherwise. She's just right. very lonely. Yes. And very isolated. And. Yeah. Very desperate, like you said, very desperate for connection. Well, um, that's how that's that's what shines the light on the weirdness. I think it's like she's got to know. She knows. She knows that she's lonely, and that she knows that she doesn't have certain things that other folks have, like you know these connections, these friendships, these relationships. That then, when she does attempt to get, but but she also she also does the exact thing in a relationship that anybody wants which is connect to something that they like, right? Like that is that when you're taught, when you're taught to love or to make friendships or to relate, you are told to hear out the other person and relate to the thing that they are interested in. And May does that. (laughs) 
<laughs> I actually, and you know what, and I, and I, I want to add a caveat to what I said. Yeah. I actually think that maybe Lucky's, my good friend Lucky, on a first name basis, <laughs> I feel like his goal was to show how weird May was, but to also show how all the people who are coded as normal are not neurodivergent or regular or socially acceptable, how fucked up they all are too. Because they are all fucked up. They all say crazy shit. Mm -hmm. They're all super weird. Yes. Several of them are, including Anna Ferris, who we'll get to, are like overtly racist. (laughs) And, um... And I actually, I really, there's a, there's a scene where May goes to a day, daycare, which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. And she talks to this woman at the front desk and the woman at the front desk has like zero social skills. Nice. <laughs> and I was just like, May is way chiller than this fucking <laughs> mean person. Yeah. Like, what the hell? So I just, I thought it was really interesting, like how how the film managed to make her out to be as weird and bizarre as she is while also maintaining that she maybe has even more humanity than everyone else around mm-hmm. her. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And I think, so, I, and I, I, I'm paraphrasing, or hopefully not even getting it incorrect, but I listened to an interview with Lucky McKee a long time ago, and it stuck with me that he had made May and basically made May about his own stress in trying to fit in and trying to, like, seek seek acceptance. Um, he was, you know, there's a lot of anger in trying to do that sometimes, which, which May um, finds that anger later on in, in the film. Like, we're, we're presented with that anger later on. But there's also a lot of awkwardness a lot of humor, like there's a lot of humanity that goes into trying to, you know, form these relationships too, but it's frustrating. It can be really frustrating. Yeah, I think she she also, I, I wonder, in kind of going back and how she sees herself, I <laughs> I thought it was really, I, I totally agree with what you say. I also think she's very cute. I think yes. she's very, not in an in necessarily infantilized way, but... She's very sweet and yeah. certain. Like, I felt like, you know, the scene where you we we meet her primary love interest, Adam. Mm-hmm. Um, she says that she has a date with him, and <laughs> the date is she's crossing the street at the same time he is because she knows his schedule. It's, <laughs> and I was just like. I I know that that's supposed to be creepy and weird, and if like the gender roles were switched, it would be totally weird. But I'm like, that's kind of cute to me. Like, yeah. I think it's kind of cute. It's definitely I'm like, you need Coda, like you need help, but like <laughs> <laughs> you need help. But yeah. it's it's. I but there's like, something about it, and I think it's I think it's the level in which she is or does not know how to do any like relate at all that makes it cute like because she's harmless at this point she's harmless at this point and we know that she's harmless at this point so at this like it's again you're sort of rooting for her connecting with her like you 
you know, this is something that happens in elementary school with a girl that you like at the park or, you know, oh whatever. I totally thought of this. Whenever he, he's he's like, what do you do, May? And I was like, there. I had to, totally that. It was like, yes. it's like how um, kids relate to each other, like yeah. asking, like, what do your parents do? Yeah. Um, and she just says, I work at a vet hospital and I sew. <laughs> and I was like, first of all, I miss the early 2000s when you could just do two things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not like today. Like, you have to be fucking yeah. everywhere today. You, just, you, you know, could just be one hyphenate, not a multi-hyphenate. You could just do things. There were no side hustles. No. She didn't have to She didn't have to work a second job. The economy, Clearly living in Los Angeles, too. She's fine. She's doing fine. Okay, so I, that was another question. I actually didn't totally clock where they lived, um, but I guess it's pretty obvious. For do you know where they shot well, this? Well, I, 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 it, it Is reads it Pasadena. <laughs> it doesn't. It's not Pasadena, but it looks. It looks like <laughs> studio. It looks like Studio City in parts, mm-hmm. um, or even maybe like Highland Park, Eagle Rock area, which is close to Pasadena. I mean, more cl- closer to Pasadena than other parts of the valley. Um, so it looks. Uh, it looks close to. Me. It looks close to those things to me. Um, it looks like where I used to near where I used to work at Jump Cook Cafe. <laughs> Shout out, uh, R.I.P. Shout to, out to a horror cut. haven. <laughs> I never went there, but I, know. I, I know. really appreciate everything you, that you would have loved it. You I really would have. I know you would have. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, um, yeah. Well, I I thought that was really it's it's so interesting. Like I I wonder if that it was it was overt or not that it was in L.A. Or well, like, I think that, like, I mean, I I don't know how long Lucky McKee was in L.A. before this movie made, but I will tell you that L.A. will foster those feelings of resentment. They will also foster those weird-ass people. <laughs> <laughs> Very that. Very much so. Very much I, so. I totally, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily buy May living in any other metropolitan area. <laughs> it's in New York. Less. It's not New York. She couldn't you. last a day in New York, man. <laughs> She's just out there vibing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She... <laughs> but so yeah. true. So true. But yeah, she, you know, it's, uh, her relationship with Adam is is super interesting. And again, like as a horror Fan. Well, I was like, going to say, let's introduce Adam into this mix. So yes. our primary love interest for the film, the primary relationship that I want to dig into that's represented is with, oh, my God, creme de la creme Jeremy Sisto. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Like fresh, fresh off of Clueless. And pre wrong turn, which doesn't matter. Pre wrong turn, <laughs> pre but also him, very two thousands. Uh, pre order. him being a dirty, dirty pig in Law and Order, um, <laughs> but we still love him. He still looks fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's a part of the copaganda machine now. Yeah. Um, what are you gonna do? <laughs> what are you gonna do? You can't save them all. Oh, man, I just kiss him. <laughs> yeah, I would save him. It's like May. Bring him uh, back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just correct. Just put your head. Your, put your cheek on his hand. Yeah, this is how we meet May in this film. Or sorry, whoa. This is how. We, back up. This is how we meet Jeremy Sisto in this film. The first words he says, I think, or wait, 
Where does she meet Jeremy Sisto? You take this, actually. Oh, I, I think that... No, I don't... I Honestly, I... Is it at the I, laundromat? Well, so that's when they first uh, talk. So he, she sees him at the she, cafe. Does she, put, does she put her... Does she put her face on his hand before the laundromat? Correct. Okay. So we're introduced to Jeremy Sisto's character because May walks up to him at a coffee shop, which is weird. Okay, first of all, he falls asleep in the middle of a day at the day at a coffee shop doing work. Question mark. Which is not work because there was a, well, I mean, it's not not work, but he there was just a picture of Dario Argento's opera, like the eye of opera on the magazine that he was reading. So it could be work. It could not be work. Okay, so do we? I feel like all of these characters are also. Well, they're all sort of like, like they're all sort of like again what we would consider outsider then, right? So you have a horror fan artist, you have a queer woman, um, you have a punk, you have. Um, they're all kind of specters for Lucky McKee. I <laughs> like, a million percent believe so. Especially Jeremy Sisto's character, who is, so yes, like you said, mm-hmm. we see him and we later learn that he's a huge Argento fan, mm-hmm. huge horror fan, mm-hmm. horror filmmaker himself. And with the <laughs> shining debut of Jack and Jill, <laughs> great film, <laughs> great short film, fucking great. And... Yeah, and she she walks up to him and she he, he's asleep with his hand very conveniently raised and open over his head. Mm-hmm. And she can't help but put her face in his hand. Yeah, it's just a cla- it's like a, the classic urges that you have as a <laughs> She she's she's just following her whim. She really is. Well, that's the other thing is like so again like where did she Lear, like her interest in bodies or parts comes from her interest in sewing. Um, I, well, I like, also think to... her her interest in the doll. And the funny thing about yeah. the doll, who's wait, her, what's her name? The doll's name again? Amy. No. Oh. Hold I don't on. remember the doll's name. I'm really bad with names. Susie. Gonna... No. Wait, I think it is Susie. It is Susie. Yes. So I think May has learned a lot about parts from her own missing parts, her or her own flawed parts, her eye. And she's also I presumably learned about them from looking at this doll, Susie, that her mother gave her. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting that I that the first body part she becomes obsessed with are Jeremy's sister's hands because you actually don't see Susie's hands. Susie has her hands behind her back. Mm. And I thought that was very interesting. Oh, that is interesting. Oh, well, I really love that. I think that May is attracted to the thing that she's not had a lot of is touch. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And... And she can't, literally can't touch the doll anyway. So, like, you have this total absence of, of touch altogether. Wow. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think it 
is also interesting that we see our filmmaker character, Jeremy Sisto, Adam, I guess I should say his character's name. Yeah, but he's Jeremy Sisto. He's Jeremy Sisto. (laughs) (laughs) He is, he's a filmmaker. He uses his hands for, and his eyes, Mm -hmm. these two sort of flawed or untangible things to me are his tools for his trade. Right. And I think that, that these, uh, you know, these are motifs that you see throughout the film. There's lots of fun eye stuff. Lots of very fun eye <laughs> Trigger stuff. Trigger warning. If you're looking for a fun eye, a fun eye movie, this is good. It's right it's up a, there with Fulci's Zombie. And <laughs> well, and it's right up there with Opera, the very, yes, the right. very film that he's so obsessed with. He has mm-hmm. the, uh, with at the like coffee art, shop. Yeah, and he has an art, like he has like a makeshift like art piece that he uses that image from uh from opera on his when she first walks into his into his house um it's great uh that's the first time i noticed it in the magazine this watch and the but also the first time i really recognized i don't know the first time i really recognized him as like oh he's a horror filmmaker and that's an entry point into us connecting to this and a huge nerd for this such a nerd such a nerd and that's and he's self-conscious about it so he's self-conscious about it, something that he is also in love with, and like there's and there's it's a something lot of that draws her to him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She is drawn to that horror. She's drawn to the she, so. At any rate, well, to flesh out their relationship a little bit, she meets him initially crossing the street. Then she puts her face in his hand in a weird way. And then they talk for the first time at the laundromat. And did you think that she went there to talk to him on purpose? Or was that just by happenstance? I, You know, I... I don't think it's made clear in the film. It's not made clear. And I... I, I either way, it reads either way. Like, for me, I, I didn't think one way or the other. I actually didn't... I actually, honestly, I didn't read it as she was lurking for him at the laundromat. I didn't think so either. I think she just the the only time that she actually was able to talk to him was when she wasn't planning on seeing him. Right, right. But it's like she knows his proximity to her and it's not it's clearly it's not difficult for her to get to him in any form. So like it's it just feels like a proximity thing. Yeah, so they they connect and we you know, see their relationship develop throughout the film. A couple of, of, of moments that really stuck out to me in their relationship, in their courtship, I should say, was one, their date at the auto parts shop that yeah. I think he works at, question mark? Yes, he's also a mechanic, so that he also works and with he his hands in that. Yeah. Exactly. Wow, cool. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Well, the same. So the same way. So the same way that May uses her hands in both her profession and in her hobby, he does the same thing. And I think that there's a connection on that level um, for her as well. Not only is he doing what she is doing, but he has beautiful hands. That and he's do it. doing it to machines while she's doing it to animals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Crazy. And um, he looks good doing it. He does. <laughs> Well, one of my favorite things about uh, going back to his Argento obsession 
was when they're sitting in this car eating a sandwich that he cut with a pocket knife, which I thought was just an incredible... Beautiful. He was like, yeah, I'm going to go eat lunch. Wait, no, they're (laughs) eating chips and salsa in the car. Okay, so they're sitting in the car, in in this weird, dismembered car, sort of a skeleton of a car, if you will, in the auto body shop that he works at. And... He asks her, he, he's, he's like, have you seen trauma? Like Argento's trauma. But obviously, she's seen some trauma before. <laughs> and, he's, and he's like, you've never seen trauma? Um, I thought that was so good. I, <laughs> I, thought that I was actually, great. honestly, don't think I caught that. I don't know why I never caught that. That's so funny. I just was, I was looking for all the Argento stuff. I know, I was, yeah. I was How could you not? Out. And... I think the other piece that I really, uh, to fast forward a little bit, whenever he finally gets her home with him, he lets her into his house. We see the aforementioned Argento posters and horror memorabilia. He really wants to show her his short film, which is a horror film called Jack and Jill, that is a romantic date turned into cannibal lovemaking fest because and clearly this, that's what he wants and this really intrigues me and I think there's you know this this part of the film is like rife with sexual innuendo he stabs her with a fake prop knife which is clearly a dick I'm sorry yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's quite clearly a dick and you can tell not by just the prop knife but the eyes he gives in which he like, those are clear fuck-me eyes um, with that knife. And so May's working off of this energy. There's clearly some sexual tension brooding. And she bites his fucking finger, and it's a step too far. He freaks out. She's drawn blood. But she thinks this is what he wants. Like, he showed her this film, and why wouldn't he be into that? Right. And he, of course... Uh, you know, in a very painful rejection scene, tells her to leave. And and we really see May, for the first time, have to, to face how her strangeness might not be making her the friends that she she's seeking. But, you know, she ends up... But in that moment, not only... She... <laughs> She has a figurative bloodlust, but then, like, um, an actual lust for more... Like, she's figured out how to connect to somebody somehow, right? So now that's all she wants to do through the remainder of the film. And it goes south because she's not... She gets a taste of... She gets a taste of it. She does. She absolutely does. It's it's really fascinating the how she changes from that moment on. I also, there was this part shortly after where she's staring at the phone waiting for him to call that completely called back audition to my mind. mind. Another film we will absolutely be covering (laughs) on this podcast that I think is like a cornerstone to why I wanted to do this. Yeah. It's... It's such, and I and I have to believe that's an intentional reference because, I mean, outside of like, of course, it's a, a classic motif waiting by the telephone, but mm-hmm. 
it was so the way that it was shot was so specifically close to audition i just was like that could be a cue that some bad shit's gonna happen yeah 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 yeah. no i'm sure it makes a lot of sense i mean he's such a student of film that i would i would imagine and that's what 99 so we're not far off like that's right that's groundbreaking stuff that he wants to include in his film I, i i buy that yeah, I mean, I guess how we see Adam sort of detach from her is, you know, a little less enticing for me. I, it's a little familiar. He's a fuckboy. He's right. like, you know, he's... he he's. I don't think he was just interested in her for sex because clearly they had some sort of connection and he was intrigued by how weird she was. But I think that... Whenever, whenever faced with this idea of connecting with people, let me think about how I want to say this. I feel like with, how do I want to say this? He, I feel like Adam really is it similarly to I'm having this thought as I'm 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 talking it through but I feel like Adam is just as if not more guilty for projecting an ideal onto May that he falls in love with as much if not more than she is doing the same to him mm-hmm. and I yeah. feel like Maybe even Lucky's intention was to show how much May loves him for him, all the dirty, creepy details, and how squeamish she is even at the slightest misstep of hers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, like, I mean, I, I wonder, I wonder if both of them have different ways of guarding themselves that clearly don't, you know, because of May's naivete about relationships and then clearly Adam uses that as a uses his interest in horror as almost a front to keep people away so when that when those walls get penetrated it's confusing for both of them are Um, they penetrated Kyle they're penetrated with a fake knife (laughs) 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 I got it I had to throw penetration in somewhere on this podcast is that what it's about penetration of horror of love oh Oh, yes baby (laughs) (laughs) um yeah it's, it's interesting I feel like Adam is a character that I absolutely would have fallen in love with and been totally heartbroken by and I think we're supposed to feel this way. I think that we're supposed to sit with May on that. Definitely. And because he doesn't like... read fuckboy in the way that like a twenty twenty two fuckboy or even like a twenty you know a... such a two thousand two fuckboy. Right, right. Who had still had some heart somewhere, <laughs> somehow, somewhere before dating apps sort of thing. Yeah, right, right, right. Where you had to be a normal human uh, in some capacity. Well, I don't. We we can get more into to the uh, de-evolution of Adam and May's relationship, but I would love to pivot to talk about Anna Ferris's brilliant character, brilliantly stupid character, Polly. So good. I feel like 
I have not seen a predatory lesbian character in a film quite so overt as this. Since maybe The Hunger? I don't know. Yeah. If like, we're talking about fuckboys, I mean, like, Polly she, is like... She is racist. <laughs> She's an asshole. She's stupid. She cannot spell. She's, I mean, which She's I, you know... aggressive. For sure aggressive. She is not gaining consent. No. No, 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 no. no. Anna Ferris plays Polly May's lesbian co-worker at the vet hospital mm-hmm. and yeah i guess what do you make of their relationship whenever we first meet them well so here's so in the way in my mind we have to compare all the relationships in this in this story right and absolutely like, so they all sort of feed into each other they do they do even though they don't necessarily directly i mean they directly affect through may but they're kind of on paper separate things. And and in the way that Adam is sort of exploring a relationship with May due to her abnormalities or like societal um, uh, hiccups, for lack of a better <laughs> I think that Social Polly, faux pas. I think when you say predatory, like Polly is preying upon that. She is exploiting. She knows. She mm-hmm. knows May doesn't know shit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. She, In all she, capacities, both professionally and personally, like she's preying on May. Exactly. So I think Polly is an interesting, she's an interesting foil to, to Adam where we see this character that's kind of, um, you know, this typical, uh, I, I mean, we see this character in Adam that provides this heteronormative outlet for May's desire for affection. While on the other hand, we see Polly as this sort of illicit, maybe slightly more dangerous, definitely more stupid, um, sex-focused relationship. Right. And I don't, necessarily think while I do think that the Anna, that Polly is extremely predatory and um not great of an example of uh queerness in media she she does highlight May's queerness which I think is extremely mm-hmm. important to the foundation of this film I think that May is definitely queer coded and yeah. If not, definitely, I mean, obviously not like a lesbian because she's into Adam as well. But I think she's, she's, she's a bisexual queen. I I think she's, she's definitely not, not into Polly. Like, well, I don't think you're wrong at all. Because I think that like, ultimately, her experiences are pretty null up until this point or we're presented as, as if her experience sexual or relational or is null at this point so she's learning from both of these people who also have their own pitfalls um, and they're also both kind of using May yes yeah yeah I yeah, would yeah. S- I, I mean Adam's very obvious uh, very obviously using May for some like emotional and sexual validation mm-hmm but I think Polly is kind of just overtly using her to get her rocks off. She also, okay, 
this was this one I had to make a note of. I sh Polly basically makes May take Polly's cat, <laughs> dude, or Polly's ex roommate's cat, or something. There's some whatever. And I was just like, that is the sign of a person who doesn't give a fuck about you. No, no. Who's you don't. just like, take this animal from me. And I, I wrote down, I was like, weird that she's just like, you have to take my cat. And then I remembered when I was in high school, there is this guy, Ian, uh -huh. who yeah. went to the other high school and he worked at the zoo and I was, and he was in a band that I was, and I, and I went to see them. And I was totally in love with him. And I took a dog for him. No. <laughs> I took a stray dog he found. And I, the dog was like, it was a puppy. And it like fucked up my whole room. And I had to end up giving it over. I had to give it to a, a I think I, had, I gave it to a rescue organization. Yeah. Because I my parents were like, can you please get rid of this dog? Yeah, where did you get this dog and can you please get rid of it? <laughs> I took this dog so this boy would love me. And I feel like yeah. May kind of is doing the same kind thing. I think she's she's not taking this cat because she's, you know, although she works in an animal hospital, she's not particularly fond of animals, I got the sense of. No, there's no real, like, no, because she can sew. It's so she can sew and feel important, like truly, like, and I, I, and it's, I think that that's why she says yes to taking the cat because that means more, um, you know, relation, like more relationship status with anybody, with Polly. Like, well, she has means, more access to Polly because she's, yes. you know, she right. took her fucking cat. Right, 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 and so, and so, May is just so, so early in her development. So, well, she's stunted in her development, but we catch her at an early developmental stage of learning to relate and love. And like, and she gets a crash course big time, at least between these two relationships, let alone the other like, um, Tertiary. peripheral. Yeah, right. The other peripheral relationships. And then ultimately by the end, not relationships, but actual people pieces parts uh that we Reese's pieces <laughs> Reese's pieces parts um, <laughs> that that that's that I know it's Reese's pieces but it's actually Reese's pieces Reese's pieces and you can't tell me otherwise it literally I'm, is I live in New England and we know everything <laughs> you go to the package store you pick up some Reese's pieces <laughs> Exactly. Is that what you say? That's what we do. I do that every morning, and I get a scratcher, and uh, and I win two bucks every once and, in a while. And, and you use that two bucks for your Reese's to pieces. buy Reese's pieces. Yes, it's very simple. It's a very simple life back here. Nobody lives that way in L.A. I'll tell you what. Clearly, because <laughs> they're all missing their parts. Yeah, they are missing their parts. I love that we've gotten this far. We've been talking about this film for like an hour. We haven't even gotten to the part that like May fully dismembers multiple people and takes their body parts to make yep. a humanoid doll. Make a lover. That's, that's the point of the film. That's the point <laughs> of the movie. That's the point of the movie. Well, because she, you know, it's it's a very it's a very like high speed. Uh, way of getting to there is she has these fucked up things that then clearly fuck her up. It's, yeah, and I think that Anna Ferris's character really plays into that by not 
I mean, no one in this film communicates, period. I think no. Anna Ferris probably tried, it seems like she tried, because she was just like, I didn't, I'm not a one-woman gal, you know? Like, right. Right. Uh, I but I think that's part of her, because she's advanced. She's advanced in her... Well, life. I also think that it's because she's a lesbian. It's because she's a lesbian. <laughs> and, and just naturally, queerness hopefully opens up more communicative skills. Or also, yeah, I think there's some some 2002, whether it's uh, critical or, or otherwise, I think it's like some some coded messaging about how queerness begets being hypersexual. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Because like, even though she reads, reads like predatory, she still reads more advanced in her relational dynamic than anybody else in this whole movie. Like she is more. And she's advanced. yet she's the stupidest person in the movie. Right. <laughs> yes. Right. Right. She doesn't right. know what a scalpel is. Scoople. Like I don't know. Scoople. Scoople. Super racist. <laughs> um, <laughs> I say she's racist because she's basically making fun of the fact that the. Oh, she's clearly ignorant and making fun of it. It's both. It's like the Latin like the double doctor who's also not a very good doctor, but no. that doesn't mean she needs to be racist at him. She don't, she don't need to be that way. <laughs> at any rate, Anna doesn't really go for May despite having this initial spark. She instead, we later learn, has found a new love interest in Ambrosia, a.k.a. Gams. Yeah, um, legs for days. And as you can imagine, we've said gams. You best believe May is going to end up taking those gams. Mm. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, we also see this this relationship with Anna Ferris play out after, I think kind of simultaneously, but mostly after the relationship with Adam has kind of fallen apart. Right. And... I think it becomes a little more mutually beneficial. Yeah. Despite the fact that it's like fully not consensual. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. But May May has learned a thing or two about a thing or two from both Adam and and Polly. So now she's like, oh, I can play the game that I need to um, and, and, and continue forth. So yeah, I mean, we've talked. We started talking about Gams. There's not a lot much else to say. She's mostly just a disembodied pair of legs that mm-hmm. um, gets in a beautiful smash cut when her death comes mm-hmm. to uh, her blood seeping into some milk that's fallen out of the fridge. Beautiful, gorgeous. Um, which is, I just have to highlight. It's so beautiful. I wrote it yeah. down. And, uh, and yeah, but we also, we, May has some other characters that she runs into and has some relationships with. We see uh, a punk that she meets. And honestly, I, I think this is also where I kind of started to get the, like, codependency, uh, beyond just the fact that she's, like, socially naive. Mm-hmm. She's pursuing these people who don't, like, she's not really into. no. She's definitely, like, or she's at least smarter than, Mm -hmm. um, especially after Adam. Yeah. I think, you know, she she sits down on the bench and this guy's sitting next to her, who's played by James Duvall. So good. He's so hot. He looks so (laughs) silly and I'm obsessed with him. Um, My SLC punk. But, uh... 
yeah, we 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 meet this character blank. His name is literally blank. He's a blank slate. Um, and she basically just picks him up off the park bench and brings him home. And at this point, she's definitely collecting body parts. But you know, he he's definitely she's making there. some moves in her life for sure. But he's he's he needs no convincing. He's there and he's taking off his clothes. He thinks he's gonna get lucky. Mm-hmm. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, he, he kind of gets to this point where he's he's really overtly trying to get horny, he asks for some ice that he can rub on his nipples. Like um, it's not a, a like it's not the craziest thing he's ever asked for. Like it's pretty, okay, like it's pretty standard. If, okay, and it's so this is what I'm saying, like May would never fucking do that. <laughs> no. No. May but you would, know what the crazy thing is though that we're talking about this now, Jeanette, that I that's totally like if I watch this movie as a I if I watch this movie as a nine, ten year old, like certainly too young to understand it, but if I saw that scene happen, I would be I would be thinking, oh, people do that. Like that is a that is a that's sex something thing. people ask. The, I, right. I mean, it is a sex thing. It is, but like, but like, even so blatantly and weirdly, like he that his presentation of it, you know, like I'd be it's like, not oh, yeah, okay to just pick up someone off the street and then. Have them ask you if you have ice. No, no. Actually, I don't want to kink shame anyone, but listen, like, you gotta... <laughs> that's you gotta, not a move? Like, that's like a, a... It feels like you have to establish a little bit more of a relationship than what they established. Feels that's like all. she could use some more buttering up than just... That's, yes, yeah. Buttering trying. the nipples. She could She could have buttered the nipples first. She could have buttered then, the nipples and then put ice put on them. ice on them. Right, 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 right. And, uh, of course, it's pertinent that uh, he asks for ice Mm -hmm. because he opens up the freezer and beautiful euphemism here, quote unquote, you've seen the dead cat in my freezer. We find the aforementioned cat Mm -hmm. that Polly schloved off on on poor May, dead in the freezer. Mm -hmm. May had killed the cat. And she didn't save the cat. She killed the cat. I actually think, I hope that was intentional. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, she she's, I, I just thought that was such a strong euphemism. May mm-hmm. literally says to blank, you've seen the dead cat in my freezer. Like, <laughs> I feel like that every time I connect with someone on an emotional level. Like, oh no, you've seen the dead cat in my freezer. You know my reality. Right, right, right. It's a beautiful turning point. Uh, again, like uh, that she goes on her on her spree. Really, like. Well, and I think we also see a brilliant nod. Um, May to is... reanimator. <laughs> to oh. reanimator, but also to Frankenstein. He literally yes. has a Frankenstein tattoo. tattoo. Blank has a Frankenstein tattoo on his arms, which are the very arms that May. Mm-hmm. takes from him. Yeah, yeah. And I I want to get into a little bit. You mentioned Universal Monsters here at the top of this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to get a little bit into Frankenstein because this has some clear... This is a clear nod. Yeah, right, right. I think that the interesting thing 
So, I mean, Frank, Frankenstein as just a, as just material is a pre-existing material is so ripe and fertile, and it continues to be so. And we gay and gay as shit. We revisit it over and over again, and especially now as Mary as Shelley's gay. Mary Shelley's gay. Get as into shit. this. As 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 we get more and more comfortable in our queerness, while also still fighting more and more for queer representation, we continue to revisit places and material that has sort of shine a, shown a light on it. You know what I mean? Like so, you know, I there's a lot of renditions of Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster that totally remove or attempt to remove the <laughs> the queer context of it, but this but May so clearly leans into it and it actually makes us more comfortable in my mind with a person who is making a a Frankenstein's monster. We, I feel more comfortable with May doing so because I see where she's coming from now. And I think that that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein uh, OG does that too. It cer- certainly is a confusing time. I'm not knocking that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is not about confusion um, within them, within oneself, and then trying to develop that into something else. But May is such a clear example of that confusion to me and where that confusion comes from and i think it's actually it's such an apt um it's such an apt idea because i think definitely folks should check out queer for fear on shutter now it's being released currently new obsession alaska thunderfuck looks sickening so sick and I, I think that it was so kismet to have this episode come out about, that highlights Mary Shelley. Yeah. Ahead, as we're watching May. Yeah. Because I think the thing that it really had me thinking about in terms of the, of the relation to Frankenstein's monster is how that character, Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein, is actually trying to for all of his pomp and circumstance about trying to do something that technology has never done before it really is about him the monster carries his name yeah similarly to how may's frankenstein's monster will carry her name in a very special way we'll get to that yeah but um but yeah i feel like you know that was such a brilliant Nod, and I, mm-hmm. I was so. And it was such a weirdly placed tattoo on, on <laughs> James Duvall's arm. It was. <laughs> it, was it was like this is clearly either a Friday the Thirteenth thirteen dollar tattoo yeah. that you got at the Sailor, Sailor Jerry's tent at <laughs> a fair, <laughs> or it's clearly a temporary tattoo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it looked so, um, yeah, it looked very that. <laughs> I think that I, I, when we talk about other representations of Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster, they just miss, they just miss so much of what that story is ripe for. And May gets it fucking right. Like, and it touches on everything that I want to hear about that story without, like, 
beating a dead Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> well, and it's and it's not. It's it. You really don't. You you have so much buildup. Yeah. Actually, probably correct me if I'm wrong, but pretty similarly to the original Frankenstein film, it's there's a lot more buildup to the building of the monster than there is actually of the monster. Of the monster, yeah. And they did that a lot. You know, Universal did that a lot, whether it was a stylistic thing. There's so much character building. Yeah, so much. I mean, I think the only one that really doesn't do that that much is Dracula. But, like, um, you know, because Dracula's just sort of presented immediately, you know, like, uh, just right out the gate. Um, But also, Dracula is a very specific monster, too. you know, another brilliant queer coded character. Yeah. Oh, for sure, for sure, for sure. Um, you know, they, it's it, you can't really compare them, but they are in the same group, so you just you start to you know see the similarities. But um, but the, all those movies were all, all all usually about the build up to this climax of the monster, and I mean May and mimics that so fucking well. It's all about hooking you into the characters. Yes. And these iconic monsters that we get from so many of these films mm-hmm. that are all, you know, wrote, I, I think that all of these universal monsters that you look back on, they're all representative of our pursuit of romantic love or human connection and the ways in which we totally fuck it up mm-hmm. and the ways right. in which our bodies fuck it up and the ways right. like you look at Wolfman such like you know total i think there's a million different ways you could read that mm-hmm. but for me i've always thought about the werewolf as a puberty metaphor yeah or a coming of age metaphor mm-hmm. and the ways in which uh, other people our bodies and the people who taught us how to love really betray us yeah yeah <laughs> shit can go awry pretty more easily than you think and like obviously horror is this heightened you know uh analogy for a lot of that but also at the same time it's also at the same time it's not it's also exactly what happens just in a you know in a different way it's it's fascinating i love this one too because like yeah the universal monsters frankenstein specifically was always promoted as the monster was the the piece but like you know, when I when I go back and I watch May, which I probably watch every five years, maybe right. Like, I would say that's a good that's a good bet. Um, I almost never really remember what the what the doll looks like. <laughs> you know what I mean? I only only remember the different variations of May as she goes on. Well, and her and the the piece the people who provide the pieces to yes. Right, it's though it's that create the monster, correct. and an, another Frankenstein parallel that I just thought of, mm-hmm. and and it it works because I was seamlessly trying to transition into this. I was thinking about the the blind children, aforementioned blind children, who May takes an interest in mm-hmm. after seeing them a couple times on her lunch break. She goes to the school to ask to help to volunteer to work with them after this these relationships with Adam and Polly have sort of disintegrated. She's decided that she wants to find something more for her life. And she wants to find a different way to connect with people. 
And so she offers to help out these blind children at a daycare. And there's one girl in particular who she connects with, presumably because she sees a lot of herself in Mm -hmm. this girl. But that girl reminds me so much of the little girl from Frankenstein's Monster with the flower. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, of course, the... (laughs) We, the blind children also cannot see her, though she desperately wants to be seen. Mm-hmm. And it all sort of ends in tragedy when she brings this this doll, Susie, that her mom made or gave to her. Her mom didn't make it for her. It was the first doll that her mom ever made. It was the first version of her mother that her mother manifested and then mm-hmm. never grew past. Mm-hmm. and unattainable in a box forever totally frozen in time yeah and her mother passes this on to her and then i actually really loved that the destruction of Susie the doll mm-hmm. comes from these children because god damn it you really can't uh, hide your trauma around children. No, children no, no. so easily expose our deepest trauma. I think yeah. just because we often see ourselves as that age, and there's a lot of there's a lot of traumatic stuff that happens when you're a kid. Yeah. Well, it's so um, interesting that she tries to present the doll to them the only way that she's only ever known the doll, and they cannot understand that. Not just because not because they're blind, but because the the box is exists in which the doll is and in. So. That's such a good point. So the blind children force the doll out of the glass box that the doll has been in forever and therefore destroys the doll, destroys the box. Causes them pain. There's bleeding glass everywhere. There's glass everywhere. The blind children are bleeding. It's a disaster. Well, it's just so interesting because May May clearly tries to find a caveat to connect to people. So she chooses blind children. (laughs) Like, whether she knows it or not, she chooses blind children as the only way. She's like, I'll be able to do this. Like, this is how. And how would the blind children be able to enjoy a doll that's behind glass? Impossible. They can't touch it. She cannot she cannot relate to anybody at this point and it devastates her. Damn, this film is tight as fuck. This film is dude, this film is so tight. Everything is interwoven. I'm obsessed with it. I think I think it's just such a strong like I I just think it's a absolutely I'm so glad they put this movie up on Shudder because I think Shout out Shudder. Yeah, audiences (laughs) now, if they've not seen May are going to love the fuck out of it. I would really like for there to be a May Renaissance. Mm-hmm. I would love that too. So, <laughs> so we we see this destruction of the doll. May, in turn, loses her shit. Takes all these body parts from the characters we've just spent the last hour bemoaning. Mm-hmm. And, you know. I, I, I really got to say the ending, the, while every part of this film is just brilliant and so tight, there's no loose ends it's that I can see. It's so masterfully made. Mm-hmm. And we get to the end where May decides to make her own first doll to replace Susie, presumably, but also just to... To memorialize all the pieces of 
these of uh, these relationships that she's taking with her and the pieces of these people's fucking bodies that she's using to construct this doll. She's got nothing left to lose anymore. Hey, really? She, you know and what you I know mean? what? She really she really gains some self confidence there. We she really does. see. And she's feeling also, her oats, dude. We haven't even mentioned this is a Halloween movie, folks. If it's you're a looking, Halloween movie. If I forget looking, every time. I totally forgot. It's so, again so subtle. Yeah. Um, but anyways, we see May on Halloween night, eyeliner, beautiful dress. She's yeah. all done up. Every everything to young Kyle. We love to see a young woman choosing herself yeah. and putting on eyeliner. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Choosing herself as a doll, as herself, as a doll. And it, 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 yeah, so she takes the pieces of these people, she murders them, you know, this is a relationship-centric podcast, we don't need to go into the gory details. Y'all get it. Y'all know, watch the fucking movie. And we, we, we see her in this beautiful, gorgeous montage with, there's... Uh, it's sort of a, almost a dream sequence. We see fabric flying, pieces of the dead cat flying, um, body parts flying. And she makes this first doll who she names Amy, an anagram for May, mm-hmm. presumably a reflection of herself that she has come to after learning about how she functions in these relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, it's so <laughs> profoundly relatable yeah. to feel like you just want someone to see you and your pain and your feelings and the way that you see your feelings and to feel understood. This is extremely human. This is very human. Mm-hmm. And well, I, and- and then you hope that at the end, I mean, for me, it's like I see that she takes the best parts of all of those relationships. And the only way that she knows that they're the best parts is because they're the parts that she was either first attracted to or the only things that, like, she connects with at this point because now the relationship's no more. Like, now the actual emotional connection is no more. But for her, it's oh, like, you know, whatever it was, it was always she can, she can now remember them by the part that she loved. And they're the parts that she she really lets herself love, and yes. I just think that you know, in this pers- this pursuit to find connection, to find love, it makes the human mind so malleable. Mm-hmm. We can convince ourselves. She convinces her, she convinces herself that she likes all these fucking people. Right. She right. convinces herself that all these people are worth her feeling hurt over. Mm-hmm. And, and like ultimately, like she's not wrong. It's it's wrong. Like that's an un, that's unhealthy. Maybe maybe I shouldn't say it's wrong. It's not healthy to cut up your old lovers and make a doll out of them. Of course. But but <laughs> but she's right in her thinking and I think that's what we connect with so deeply. Yeah, because that's that's all she's it doesn't seem like she's asking for very much, but really as we've heard time and time again, 
you can't love somebody else until you learn to love yourself. And I think her creating Amy is really her learning how to love herself. Yes. From the trauma that she's endured in these relationships. Right. She's choosing she's choosing herself on Halloween. She's night choosing herself. She's fucking go choosing off. herself. She is. She is. And she does go off. She makes a fucking human doll. <laughs> and she she's sitting there so frustrated. She cuts out her own fucking eye. Right. Gives it to her doll. Right. So she, her eye can perceive her outside of the mirror, outside of society's yes. stare. Yep. 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 And when she offers a very, herself, her truest form, the doll becomes alive. Her and perfected she, eye, too, right? That's her, that's her. Okay. Surgically altered eye, which is now considered perfect because it's not lazy anymore. I did have some questions about contact technology around yeah. this time. Yeah. Let's, we don't need to get into it. I, I think po- that, yeah. I, I You got questions. I got no answers and vice versa. I got questions. You don't got answers for that. I definitely have no answers about the lazy eye. Yeah. But, but I buy it. I'll buy that for a dollar. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, th- I she finally sees herself, and she finally gets her face touched. Yes, yes, we'd love to see it. The we final, the touch. final beautiful Caress. shot of this yeah. film is the is Amy's hand touching May's face. The one thing this bitch wanted, mm-hmm. she got what she wanted. She got what she wanted. She got, and she, you know what? She she fought for that too. She <laughs> she she did that for her. She chose herself and she got what she wanted because she did it. So so what can we learn about love from May, you think? I think I think the biggest takeaway for me is that you you do need to learn things from other people. Like you you can't learn about relationships without hands-on experience really truly you can't Um, make an omelet without breaking a few eggs honey correct correct and i think you can't learn to love without breaking your own heart (laughs) which is also so true and i love the um the the accent that you have in which you tell me these things uh it makes me feel very comfortable um but i think that like i start waxing poetic and i immediately am transported to oklahoma in 2002 mm. warms my heart really Listen. does uh, i think well so I, and and now as and now as a, a a father of a toddler i can't not watch a lot of this stuff through that lens now through the lens of being a parent um, and which is why i mean if if you couldn't figure it out in how i was talking about this movie at all before i hope you do now is that i'm you have to be taught how to be in a relationship with somebody. And you learn that from the, from, I would say you first start with your parents and then go from there. So it's like, for me, and if it, your parents uh, don't teach you how to be in a fucking relationship, mm-hmm. shit is rough. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just, and that's not, that's not a, to me, that's, it's both a big, huge thing and also not that big of a thing. Cause well, it's very common. I think it's, it's such a common thing. Mm-hmm. The children of, baby boomers who were parented a very specific way, parented a very specific way. Correct. Correct. And, and we're learning. I, and I hope, exa- absolutely. And I, 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 and I hope, 
And you know, generations from now, this could be looked upon as a as a as a uh, something that needed to be improved upon too. But my hope is to teach my son to about what love and care is for their fellow person. And by leading with that, I hope that that develops into healthy relationships and friendships, and then beyond that, love. Because I cannot teach them everything, but I can at least pour a foundation in which they can build upon. Um, and May taught me a little bit. May reflected that a little bit at me um, in this viewing, because May clearly did not have a foundation like that. And it wasn't even a completely rocky and destroyed foundation. It was simply an indifferent and ambivalent foundation in a lot of ways. I think that May is definitely, though I guess technically she's Gen X, I think she's definitely a millennial hero in that Absolutely. respect. What did you what did you what did you feel about May? What did you learn or what could you learn from May? I think that May just sort of reflected this lesson I've come to a lot in my late 20s and early 30s where I really have to prioritize myself. And when I'm capable of prioritizing myself, I can help other people a lot more effectively. And I can love people a lot more effectively. I can love people a lot more honestly. And I think that this film is so ahead of its time in the way that it's portraying that. I just think it's extremely special. And um, yeah, hats off, Lucky. You yeah. slayed it. Well, Lucky's got a new one coming out called The Old Man. It's coming out soon. Well, I okay, so I, I wanted to briefly uh, touch on our uh, relationship to Lucky McKee's films because there is, we did have a very, uh, I had a very influential film viewing experience when we were in college together watching the film The Woman, mm -hmm. which is another Lucky McKee joint. Yes. Um, so it makes me excited to hear that we're also going to get the perspective of the old man in yes. that film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that, I think that um, if there's one thing I trust Lucky McKee to do, it's to make a pretty fucking good film. Um, so I'm, I'm excited and I'm eager to see what comes. Uh, you know, I, I, when, when the dude strikes, he strikes. And I, I just think between May and the woman working, uh, the woman working off of Jack Ketchum's, um, material and now the old man again which I, I don't know a lot about i'm just excited i'm just excited is it a sequel no 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 the old man it's is totally separate yeah let's let's just let's just get a old yeah man. get a reference okay also he didn't direct darlin did he no no darlin was directed by um by polly who's the by woman the woman who, by the person who plays the woman got yes. it um, after a lost hiker stumbles into the cabin of an eccentric old man, it becomes clear that one of them is hiding a terrifying secret. Um, looks like a like a you know a two to three person cast. Um, Keep it tight, Lucky. Yeah, Stephen Lang, who was in Don't Breathe, the, who was the blind man in Don't Breathe, is the old is man. Is he theme. really blind? No, 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 no. 
Um, Cast but, blind actors. Get yeah. May. <laughs> <laughs> um, Get that uh, little girl. <laughs> oh, you know Angela Bettis was in The Woman too, and I love to see Angela in anything. Angela Bettis. She's the wife. She was the wife in The Woman. And, Damn, we gotta um, revisit The Woman. We dude. do. The Woman needs a revisit, and I think The Woman uh, deserves a revisit from people now too. And I hope that if May gets some love and the Old Man gets some love, that The Woman will resurface because uh, it's also a very important film for both of us, Jeanette. I remember it being incredibly important, um, provocative, thought-provoking. Is that the same thing, provocative and thought provoking? Maybe not, but we got um, into some we got into some discussions yeah, that night. No doubt. No doubt. With one Alan Peterson. Shout out Alan Peterson. <laughs> Shout out Alan Peterson. <laughs> That's right. Um, but yeah, I, I this movie I, I'm so glad I and this really started my October was watching May and it was a great way to start. What else are you watching this October, Kyle? Um, so I I started Queer for Fear. Uh, very excited about that. Um, you know, ultimately, be being the dad of a of a toddler narrows That's down. Very my, cute toddler, to my made up. He loves his Baba. Um, I I don't. I watch a lot of stuff for homework. Let's say so. May, as much as I enjoyed May, it was also homework. Uh, it just I choose homework that will also equally feed my soul. Uh, I, I'm on a podcast <laughs> called Horror Movie Night, which will give me homework to watch other movies. So there's some stuff coming up that I have to watch for them. Um, but ultimately, I'm very much looking forward to the new Hellraiser that comes out. Um, I am I, Clive Barker is so. I mean, I. Every time I start to talk about the new Hellraiser coming out, period, I reinstate and re... Uh, I just remember how important Clive Barker is to me. Um, so I'm very excited for Hellraiser. Talk about somebody that knows about horror and love. No fucking kidding. Baby. Right? God and bless. sex. My um, goodness. We're going to have to bring some... We're going to have to bring some Clive Barker to this podcast, mm-hmm. I think. I oh, think, we should. We should. We should. We should. I think There's... we're going to have to have some Candyman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're gonna There's... definitely have to have some Hellraiser because I want I want I want to bring the kink the kink into the yeah. bedroom. Yeah, 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 yeah. That I mean, Hellraiser one and two, fucking both are unreal, unreal what films. About, what about Hellworld? Hellworld is also an unreal film for a lot of other reasons, but you know, you you and I love the fuck out of Hellworld. What Hellworld's year is getting, that? Hell, what? What year? Two thousand. That's also. <laughs> Also, 2005, but maybe filmed in 2002, 2003. Mm, what um, an era! <laughs> I, I, it's my and I talk about this on the other podcast all the time because I. Spoiler alert: We're Book of Shadows, Blair Witch Two, Book of Shadows is coming out in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> speaking. Oh my god! That legit scared the shit out of me. Cat, you know, pod, podcasters with cats, man. It'll it'll fucking get you. We're podcasters. podcasters. Cupid, Cupid. Fully, as you were saying, Book of Shadows jumped. Horrifying. Horrifying. Over my shoulder. Over your not, shoulder. Not dissimilar to the specter on the DVD cover of Book of Shadows. Of Book of Shadows. It's very, it was that. I saw the whole face. It scared oh the shit out of me. Oh my God. <laughs> Gave me such a fright. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> but I know you're going to love that episode because we love that movie. We fucking love. Book it's of a very good movie, and we 
love Blair Witch. Oh yeah. my god. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, I I'm bouncing all over the place. I got some stuff from Vinegar Syndrome that I got to catch up on, and you know, I just I I, I bounce we'll around. Talk, oh, we're watching, everyone. We're watching Dahmer right now on Netflix, and it's fine. It's whatever. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. <laughs> what about you, baby? What else am I watching? Wow, I had just the most fantastic film weekend, kicked off by May, of course. I also watched the new Shutter film, Sissy, which I thought was really, really fun. I thought it was a great take on social media and a really creative way that I hadn't seen before that I really liked. And I don't really like social media horror, really. Um, I thought it was really, really well done. I also saw not necessarily a horror film, but maybe horrific in how shitty the characters are. I saw the new Claire Denis film. Star, uh, I saw the new Claire Denis film, The Stars at Noon, mm. which uh, was at New York Film Festival this weekend. It was fucking beautiful. Um, admittedly, City Slang is releasing the soundtrack for it. Nice. Uh, by Tindersticks. A24, shout out. And uh, I watched, oh my God, speaking of queer horror, I saw beautiful film Rope. And I'm very excited to hear about that film on the next episode of Queer for Fear because it's going to get into how Hitchcock used queer characters to talk about social unrest. And I'm really excited to look into that, even though... I mean, Hitchcock's an asshole, piece of shit, et cetera. But, yeah, but hey, man, what did, we, what did we say about omelets before? <laughs> Something about breaking eggs and shit. Yeah, you have to ruin a few women's lives. Um, <laughs> shout out. Um, everyone listen to Jamie Loftus's podcast about Lolita for some more information on that. <laughs> Anyways, what else did I see? I also just watched Barbarian in theaters. It's quite good. Nice. I, don't understand why people think it's so scary. It's like not scary at all, but <laughs> for sure, maybe people are shook. Mm, I'm kind of like maybe instead of Barbarian, watch Speak No Evil on Shutter. Yeah, sort of I heard a, that shit was scary. That was quite scary, quite gruesome, very yeah. brutal. Danish film. They um, know what they're doing over there. They they know a thing or two about a thing or two. I do, I feel like we'll get into this on future episodes, but we are, we are alive and well in the season of millennial horror, Kyle. Mm -hmm. It is, it is happening. It's happening. So, yeah, that's what I've been watching. And I'm trying to think of if there's anything else important that we, uh, we should highlight about this beautiful film. Oh, this is very random. But I just want to give a shout out to the fact that Adam and his girlfriend, who may end up killing both of them, uh, they're dressed up as Gladiator and Josie and the Pussycats, which feels like such a clutch 2002 little movie <laughs> reference. I was Absolutely. here for it. I totally clocked it. I so good. loved it. Yeah, this movie is great. Go watch May, rewatch it, tell your friends. Let's let's spread the word about 
how special Lucky McKee is. Mm-hmm. All right, Kyle. Well, that's All it right, for Jeanette. this episode. Thank you. We God, finished, what a fucking joy. I love you. You know the, that. I love you so much. We finished the first episode. Yeah. Can, can you tell the good people where to find you? Yeah, so you can find me at kylecookta.com or on Instagram and Twitter at krcookta. Instagram is my sort of go-to for now. And then uh, on my website, you'll find all the screenings for my short, The Woodsman. Um, and you can Such a good movie. I loved it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's finishing out its festival run probably December, but maybe a few more at the beginning of 2023. Um, it's going to be an excellent Christmas. It's going to be a well, fucking great Christmas. Um, the, sh- the Woodsman is about Christmas. Yes, yeah, you will You will be treated with it uh, for Christmas, hopefully. Uh, we, we shall see. But um, you can, and I, I do like, because I don't try, I don't do a ton of social media blasts, so you can always sign up for like my newsletter. It's a great way to just get like one maybe monthly or bi-monthly sort of like, here's what's happening. Um, <laughs> to promote a newsletter, but truly, it's I I prefer it over everything else. Um, and then yeah, that's where you can find me. Um, you can also listen to me on Horror Movie Night uh, podcast. Love um, Horror Movie Night, and we love you, Jay. Um, they're they're excited to hear the about this show. I know they are. Um, so ah, uh, especially so that we talked about May. So oh hell yeah, you can find oh. me around. You can find me around. I see you around. Yeah. Yep. So thanks for thank listening, you. everyone. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our first episode. I'm Jeanette Wall, your host. Music is Big Big Baby by King Hannah. And our editor is Yasmin Mifdal. Please follow us on Instagram at Horrors of Love. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>